Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for your word, and I also thank you for everybody that's gone before us. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to appreciate the opportunity to honor you with our lives, just like they honored you with theirs. We give this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Age of Enlightenment. Happy to be here. Last week, or last, yeah, last week we talked about philosophers and kings and things going on with that. This, this week we're talking about missionaries and explorers. If you're talking about the movers and shakers in the 17th century, this is where we're getting into some really interesting, colorful people. For instance, 1667, a guy named Suarez reached out to a group called the Quarani. Um, Jesuit missionaries. We've been talking about the Jesuits, right? These guys have just been all over the place. They're going over the entire world, sharing the gospel, knocking the, the ball out of the park, including a guy named uh, Gonzalez, uh, Roque, it's Roque it's like, I believe how you pronounce his name, Roque uh, Gonzalez, who was the first European to go to these jungles in the south of Peru. First guy, first European ever to sit foot in there back in 1628. And the historical basis for uh, Father Gabriel in the mission. You ever seen the movie The Mission? Yeah. yeah. Dearly love that movie. Not a fun movie, but a very powerful movie. But this scene where he went and, and reached out to Indians who were murdering everybody to try to reach out to them and try to reach out to them in, in meaningful, unique sorts of ways, that's exactly what this guy did. They just took this character and bumped him back a century to put him into another historical context. Uh, but, but this guy, uh, uh, Gabriel's attitude and his means of kind of reaching out to the natives is exactly what Roque Gonzalez used to, used to do 100 years before that. Anyway. But, if you remember from the, from the Jesuits, these guys were trying to be, at a time, especially when they were created, at a time when a lot of people weren't reading the Bible at all, these guys were trying to be grounded in Scripture, they were trying to be educators everywhere that they went. So that there were all these Jesuit schools that all the, the wealthy people would go to. And they were trying to reach out into the context where people were at. If you remember when they were in Japan, they, they even said, why don't we just wear orange robes so that we could See, like, be, you know, be like the Buddhist priests, and uh, and Rome said, "No, you're authorized to wear black robes, not orange." To which the Jesuits went, and, uh, anyway. But they had strict obedience to the Pope. Whatever the Pope said, that's what the Jesuits were all about. So they were they were fine with doing that. They just said, "I'm not sure I understand exactly why." Anyway, 1667, a Jesuit named Lucero uh, explored a lot of Ecuador along the Napo River Valley up here. Roque is down here. Uh, Lucero is up here. And that same year, a Jesuit missionary named Pedro Suarez reached out to a completely unreached people group, a group called the Huarani or the Alcas, or what the, their natives uh, nearby called them, because Alcas just means savages. When other jungle natives say, well, oh, those guys are savages, that should say something to you. So, he didn't impress them very much. These guys are extremely warlike, and they distrusted everybody who wasn't an Alka. They had legends that everybody else are a bunch of like crazy cannibal people that'll kill you and eat you. So they were terrified of everybody who wasn't them. Which is why they killed him with spears. They just it was like it was a Caesar moment. He got multiple spears stuck in him and died nastily. And so nobody tried to reach out to them for centuries. Like we're not touching these people. These are just not, not a nice people group. 
And the very next attempt was in 1956. It also ended in missionaries getting murdered. Anybody remember this story? The Elliots, yes. Chronicled in the, in the book Beyond Gates of Splendor or in the movie End of the Spear, wherever you want to go with this. But, again, kind of like with Suarez, kind of like with, with this time with the Jesuits, even though uh, Jim Elliott's team got murdered, his family continued to try to reach out to them and, and, and eventually did make an inroad. In fact, the Alcas, well, that's a whole other story we'll get to in a couple centuries. But if you're unfamiliar with it, I would encourage you to read the book, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, and, and what exactly God did and how he used even their murderous hearts to try to reach out to them and make a difference to them. But all that started back in 1667 with the Jesuits, trying desperately to reach out to these guys. So, anyway, lots of outreach going on. Some of it's effective, some of it not as much. 1671, Quaker missionaries are going to the Carolinas. Like I said, everybody's trying to do outreach. Again, we tend to think, when we think of missionaries, we think of, maybe the Jesuits, we think of going to deepest, darkest Africa. You don't normally think, missionaries, ah, the Carolinas. But again, remember, A, the Quakers are even trying to talk to other Christians to reach out with their Quakerism, but also to the natives, to the Native Americans in, in the Carolinas. So, if you remember George Fox, the guy who actually founded Quakerism, both George Fox and a guy named William Edmondson went to the colonies in 1671 trying to share the message of the Quakers with not only the Christians, but also Quakers were some of the first ones to really learn the various Native American tribe dialects and things, and try to get in there and, and, and reach them with the gospel, which is kind of cool when you think about it. Edmondson even traveled through all this swampland. He's kind of famous for trudging through the nastiest bits to try to talk to people that nobody else had talked to yet. Either even the growing culture of backwoodsmen kind of thing amongst the Europeans, but also the natives in the, in the area. So kind of, kind of a cool guy. He had been part of Cromwell's new model army. Remember these guys that invaded Ireland. And yes, he had invaded Ireland with Cromwell. After the invasion, Parliament said, you know what? We can't always pay you what we should pay you, so we'd love to give you land in, in Ireland. We killed off a ton of the Irish, and we'd encourage all you guys to go, anybody who wants to can go settle in Ireland. Now, you can imagine how the Irish felt about English former soldiers going and living there. But it, it was a way, it made sense when you think about it, it was a way for England to say, we can't afford to have a garrison of troops there necessarily all the time, but if you just live there, knock yourself up. You know, we can hand you land and, and, and you just be a live-in police force. So he, he got married, nice new wife Margaret, moved there in 1652. He was back in England a few years later and he heard the preaching of a Quaker named James Naylor. Remember this guy? I remember the picture. From a few weeks ago? Yeah, he got tried and convicted by Parliament for blasphemy because yeah. he rode into town uh, like Christ did in Palm Sunday. See, it seemed like such a great idea. What was God telling him that that's what he should do? And the Parliament going, I'm pretty sure God didn't tell you to do that. He's the guy that got branded and humiliated and his tongue pierced. Yeah, the whole schmear. Yeah. Anyway, so he heard James Naylor preaching Quakerism. And so he converted to being a Quaker. It made total sense to him. 
He took the faith back to Ireland, became the founder of Quakerism in Ireland, gave all sorts of services in his home, made a difference, really drew a lot of people to the Lord, which got him in trouble. Because you're not supposed to do that. Remember, this is it's a time when, when the, the, uh, the extremely Calvinist Puritans, and then later on the extremely Catholicized Church of England and the Church of Ireland, really didn't like the Quakers. Nobody liked the Quakers. And so he got thrown into prison several times for actually meeting in his home, actually preaching Quakerism. Not a good time to be not part of the status quo. In fact, we were just talking about this, just talking about this the other day with my aunt and uncle. Is this a time in history where there just wasn't a whole lot of live and let live? There was not a lot of tolerance all the way around. The Puritans hated everybody that wasn't Puritans. The re-Catholicized Church of England and Church of Ireland really hated anybody that wasn't them. So, in fact, uh, Edmondson's wife, uh, or Margaret, was eventually stripped naked by the Irish church authorities and thrown out into the snow where she got pneumonia and she ended up dying. It's not really nice to be a Quaker at this time in history. So, during the Great Plague of London, 1665, that we talked about last time, remember that? They're throwing dead bodies out in the streets, yada yada. About 7,000 people dying a day. Uh, in there. Uh, a lot of English people left the country and were sent their families away because they're like, we don't want you to get the plague. So we're going to send you overseas. Now's a perfect time to visit Paris. Now's a perfect time to go to Ireland, whatever. One of those who left the country was a guy named William Penn, whose father sent him away because they were filthy, stinking rich. And so he's like, I'm going to pay for you to go. Now's a good time to visit Ireland. Everybody's going to Ireland. It's kind of the new get free land kind of thing. Pack yourself out. Go to Ireland where he heard William Edmondson preaching, because Edmondson had brought Quakerism back to Ireland. William Penn had already been interested in Quakerism, which is also part of why William Penn Sr. sent him away. He's like, I don't like Quakerism. You kind of seem to be hanging out with these people. Why don't you go to a whole other country where you'll never hear about it? And you go, oh, here you heard about it from the best missionary that Quakers ever had. I find God fascinating in this. The, the sense of God's ironic timing. Send you away from all those Quakers. Yeah, best preacher they ever had. Knock yourself out. Anyway, so both Penn and Edmondson began traveling all over the place. Penn becomes this awesome missionary for, uh, for Quakerism as well. And he starts writing these pamphlets. He starts promoting all sorts of Quaker principles. He attacks the Church of England. He attacks the Puritans. He attacks the monarchy. Which makes him really popular, right? You can't sit there and say, you guys are a whole bunch of flaming hypocrites without torquing some people off. And when you think about Quakers, a lot of times when we think about Quakers, we tend to think of them as it's like really quiet, really passive. So, you know, no, they tend to be pacifists. That's not the same thing as passive. I, I won't poke you with a sharp stick, but I will call you a hypocrite in a pamphlet and print that and throw it all over the place extremely intense arguments that he gave against everybody pretty much other than Quakers. Anyway, so he got thrown into prison several times. But it, while he's in prison, oh, well, here, no, 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 let me back up. I'll give, you, I'll give you a for instance. One occasion, the Lord Mayor of London, uh, who also acted as a judge in a lot of civil cases, the Lord Mayor of London threw him into prison for unspecified charges, which is against the law. You, you, every prisoner, even back then in England, every prisoner had the right to know what they were being charged with. 
and, and requested to know what the charges actually were. Theoretically, the charges were preaching without a license, preaching in large numbers, but, but, but the Lord Mayor's like, I'm not going through that because anything I tell you, you can actually make a defense against. So you're just in trouble. That's why you're in prison. You're in trouble. And then he called the jury to convict Penn before they'd heard any defense arguments for Penn. Like, okay, here's all the crap that he's done. You're like, but, but what exactly, what laws, Penn kept saying, what, what laws have I specifically broken? And the Lord Mayor could never actually say anything. And when the defense got up to, to, to defend him, the Lord Mayor said, that's it, we don't have time for this, just give me, give me your response. Which is, again, illegal to do. The jury came back and said, I think he's not guilty. Because we don't know what law he broke. He's guilty of what exactly? So the Lord Mayor threw them in jail and said, no, no, you're going you're gonna to go together and bring in another verdict or you're going to starve. You're in jail because you're in contempt of court. I think he's guilty, and until you bring me back a guilty verdict, you're in contempt of court, which is also really wacky fun. So was he in London at the time? No, yeah, he hasn't gone to the Americas. Oh, okay. Um, he's never been to the Americas. Uh, a juror, a juror named Edward Bushel refused to ever pay the fine. Because the judge says, you're, you're, I'm going to fine you as a jury, and I'm going to throw you into jail. Bushel says, I'm never paying this fine, because what you're doing is illegal. And so he appealed to a higher court. He's like, higher than the Lord Mayor of London, I want to know, is this legal in the law of the land? I don't think it's legal. I think you're, I think you're breaking the law, Mayor of London. And the higher court found in favor of the jury. Said, he is. He's breaking the law. You guys are absolutely true. You guys are absolutely right. He has no right to do this. It's called Bushel's case. And it set the precedent for all future juries from coming under punishment by judges for their decision. You cannot be punished for deciding a certain way. A judge can call you, can find you in contempt of court if you, like, are contemptible in the court, you know, but they can't find you in contempt of court just by finding, um, uh, making a sentence, or not a sentence, but uh, a verdict, thank you. Finding a verdict that's separate from what the judge was hoping for. So, everybody say thank you to, the, to Penn and the Quakers, because this is part of our law now, thanks to, exactly, the use of the ego. We, you can be on a jury without getting in trouble with the judge for your verdict, thanks to Penn and the Quakers. Important legal precedent, huge important legal precedent. Anyway, interestingly, one of the Quakers' most vitriolic opponents in the, in the Americas was Roger Williams. Does anybody remember who Roger Williams was? Yep, anything else do you know that he did? He was instrumental in the colonies. Yep, yep. The government there. He's also, remember he set up Rhode Island to support soul liberty. Everybody gets to believe what they want to believe. And they're going to be held accountable before the Lord for that. But he's like, you get to be, I want Rhode Island to be this haven for anybody who is under religious persecution for their beliefs. And I hate the Quakers. Kind of, kind of. He said, you guys are popish, you're Jewish, because you refuse to take part in any kind of Protestant services. And you, you refuse to be part of any other churches, even though technically neither did he. If you remember, he said there are no churches out there that are pure enough to be part of. So why? Why would you sit there and say, 
I believe that everybody has to believe what they need to, what they personally believe, and I am not part of church services. And the Quakers come along and say, right, we believe you have to follow whatever God lays on your heart, and we're not part of any of these Baptist church services. Why, why hate them for doing exactly what you do, sort of? The two kinds of people that people tend to hate the most are the people who are diametrically opposed to them or the people who are just like them, sort of. You tend to get the most frustrated with people who are kind of like you. Not exactly like you. Kind of like you. If, if they struggle in the things that you see in yourself that you don't want to struggle in, that will grate against your sensibilities on a huge level. Or if they're sort of doing what you spent your life saying, here's exactly how to do it. They said, you're a hypocrite. You don't go to church services either. And you say religious tolerance for all. Except the Quakers who are horrible. I hate them, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. You even support, you even say Rhode Island should be there for Catholics and Jews, and then you use popists and Jews as derogatory terms for us. You're a hypocrite, Roger. Which again, neither one's endearing themselves to the other one. Came down to this. Williams believed that only the Bible should be the basis for worship. And all traditions are man-made. Uh, sign gifts have ceased. The state is corrupt. You can't trust anything other than the Bible. And the Bible alone. Right? And no churches are actually doing that perfectly. Churches still t tend to lean on some traditions or the state gives them some direction or they feel like God laid something on their heart like God still does that. It's the Bible and the Bible alone. The Quakers believe that the charismatic gifts, prophecies, should be the basis of worship. They should even supersede the Bible. Right? When we talked about it, I mean, there's like, if, if you feel that God's inner light in you is leading you to believe something that even the Bible says is right, well, you've got to follow God. Don't you have to follow God as opposed to this, this man-made word? You know, but how do you know it's God? You've got to bounce against Scripture. It's... You look at both of these and you go, so long as you come at it this direction, as long as you say we're kind of similar with two fundamentally different fund foundations, yeah, they're going to hate each other. They're just going to hate each other with a lot and a lot of hate. Wacky fun, church. Anyway, 1673, since we're talking about, well, let me back up, let me back up this. How does this play out in nowadays world? How do we think about this now? What does this do for us? The thing is, the interpretation of what it says is one of the difficult things. Mm -hmm. What does the Bible say? What? How do we interpret that? That's huge. How else? We, we kind of look alike, but we have two slightly different fundamental differences, and that makes us hate each other. Do you, have you run into this in script? In, in, Bible circles and churchy circles. Yeah. Well, I think a lot more believers are told like real like negativity and animosity towards Job's witnesses and Mormons than they do towards Muslims and Hindus mm -hmm. because they're closer. Mm -hmm. And and we sit there and go, um, what do you feel about Buddhists? I don't know. Uh, they're Oriental. I mean, I don't think they're Christian, whatever. What do you feel about Mormons? Oh, those guys are messed up. You know, yeah, you have, 
you, you have more of an emotive reaction because they're, they're talking about Jesus, they talk about the divine word of the Bible, they talk about God, your Father, they talk about uh, being saved by Christ's work on the cross, and they don't mean anything like what we mean when they talk about those things. And so they're using all of our words, but they're using them wrong, right? Buddhists sit there and go, yeah, well, I don't use any of your words. I'm, I'm doing our own thing. So we sit there and go, well, yeah, you guys are off. Man, these guys are messed up. That's, that's a good example. Or even within Christianity itself, there's a lot of people who get really vitriolic about Catholics or Catholics about Protestants. Or different Baptists hate different Baptists because they're like, well, but you're doing it wrong. We really probably need to figure out how to how to uh, appreciate people coming at things from different angles while not necessarily agreeing with them, but appreciate why they've arrived at these conclusions. Learn from people coming at things from different angles. Called cognitive complexity. I really like being you know the idea of trying to look at things from different perspectives at the same time. I don't have to agree with you, but I want to make sure I understand you. Anyway. Okay, sixteen seventy three. Marquette and Joliet reach Illinois, and that is not the way you pronounce his name. Is what Joliet? I'm not good at French, so I'm going to call it Joliet because I'm from Illinois, and that's what we do in Illinois. It's Cairo, right? Verbas. <laughs> yeah, we know how to pronounce good stuff. So, Father Jacques Marquette, Père Marquette. That's you know, Father Marquette in, in French, which is why we named the hotel downtown Père Marquette, right? Father Marquette. So. Jacques Marquette is a French Jesuit who travels with this French-Canadian explorer named Louis Joliet. Jo I actually heard somebody call him Louis Joliet one time. I'm like, oh, even I know it's Louis. Give me, you know. Anyway, who had studied to be a Jesuit. So you've got a guy who is a Jesuit and a guy who had studied to be a Jesuit who are going to go exploring the area. They're going to explore the Mississippi River from the north. People had started down south and gone up a bit. But nobody had done it from the north. They're, they weren't entirely even certain it was the same river. They wanted to make sure that they knew. So they go from the north southward, and they stopped about 435 miles north of the Gulf of Mexico because they started running into Native Americans that had met Europeans. They're like, okay, this we've now mapped this whole thing. Other people have been south of us. We don't need to go any further south because they didn't want to get messed up with the whole French-Spanish thing. The French and the Spanish are starting to fight over, like, Louisiana and that area. And they're like, we, uh, we don't want to get into any of the politics. We don't want to run into any Spaniards. We're, we're cool. We just wanted to make sure that we'd explored. I think we're done now. This is, we're close enough to the Gulf of Mexico. We can go back now. But what's interesting is, as um, they were turning around to go northward again, they, they, they'd done everything they wanted to do, and they, they're like, okay, let's go back northward. They decided to explore tributary, the Illinois River, named after the Illinois tribe or the Illini, or however you want to pronounce it. The Illini said, don't do it. Don't go up the Illinois. That's where the Mishapeshu are. These are these river monsters, and they're scary, and they kill people. They look like a deranged elk. Then they, they go over up, they float in the water. They're scary. Don't go there. Like Asian car. Like Asian car, <laughs> Marquette said, as they went up along the Illinois, they kept running into all sorts of depictions of the Mishapeshu on, on rock faces all along the river. They kept running into all sorts of Indian tribes that said, oh yeah, totally. Everybody agreed that this thing exists. Marquette even drew a, 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 a sketch of it in his journals going, 
this is what everybody says it looks like, and they all consistently say it looks like this. The Europeans never saw it, but this is, and we sit there and we go, oh, we never hear about this. It's kind of interesting stuff. We should push you. Back yourself out. But it also explains why, in general, uh, there's just a lot of fear when it comes to exploring. It's not just, gee, I don't know what's wrong with the other bend. It's, it's people going, big old water monster, kill you dead, don't go there. Um, and it, the natives actually believed that this thing existed, that it was actually there. When the explorers said, we're going to do it anyway, uh, the Illini gave Marquette a calumet. Do you know what a calumet is? How many people have ever heard the word calumet? What, what, from where? Calumet City. Calumet City in Chicago, right? Blue Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's Blue Brothers. Is that a cleanser, too? I, well, is it? Might be. We tend to call it a peace pipe. But that's what a calumet is. It's this pipe that you that you smoke together to to bond with different tribes or or to make a, a, a treaty. But it's a calumet, which is why Calumet City is like where he was given a calumet. Anyway, and they said, "We bless you. Knock yourself out, boy. We hope the Mishapeshu doesn't eat you. Good luck." In looking at depictions of of Marquette, I was struck by a common theme, and I want to see if you guys see the common theme too. I looked at a whole bunch of different pictures. What consistency or consistencies do you see in these pictures? Water. Water. Canoes. 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 Anything specifically about Marquette himself? Yeah! He can't seem to physically sit in a canoe, right? In fact, I was going to make fun of that. I was going to make fun of the fact that guy cannot sit in a canoe. Everybody else can sit. Maybe every once in a while I have somebody else standing, but it's always him standing. I was going to make fun of that, except that this is apparently depicting an actual historical event. There's a reason why they do this. Is that when they met the tribes along the Illinois, even some that were very antagonistic toward outsiders, the tribes were impressed by Marquette because as they approached, he stood up in the canoe completely unafraid. I mean, they're standing there on the banks with spears, with, with, with things. Stands up in the canoe and holds up a calumet. And, and they went, this guy has no fear of us whatsoever, and he's extending this peace pipe to us, and that's what made a difference. And was able to actually share the gospel because of a complete lack of fear of, of things. So I, I was going to make fun of the guy, and I'm like, now I totally see why all the pictures of him have him standing in a canoe. I, just, I, I was going to make fun of him also, and I'm like, okay, I just I respect you all that much more. It's kind of cool. So, huge success this exploratory mission. Uh, <coughs> as a result of this, the French and Indian relationships all along the river, all around the area, became much more strengthened. Well, a while back when we were talking about New France and New England and New Amsterdam, we were trying to talk about the different relationships that, that the different tribes had with things. On the coast, in general, the Dutch and the English were trying to carve out their own new communities, or kind of trying to make a new England, a new uh, Dutch Republic, a new fill-in-the-blank, a new Amsterdam. They're trying to build cities. They're trying, in general, not. I mean, I don't want to overstate this because there were there were people in in New England that did this, and there were people in uh, New France that built cities. But in general, a lot of times the French were trying to connect with the Native Americans, were trying to make use of trade routes, were trying to get beaver pelts, etc. 
as a result, you get a lot of buildup in New England, a lot of new laws, a lot of, uh, of new cities, all that kind of stuff, and you get a lot of positive relationships between the French and the Indians in New France. This is going to be really important in about 75 years when the English and the French start to go to war against each other in the New World, who, if you're a Native American, will you tend to want to side with? It's the French, which is why I'm calling it the French and Indian War. That's what we call it. Nobody else around the world calls it that. Anyway, Marquette even established the first permanent Jesuit mission at, um, anybody from, what, what do you call this? St. Ignace. St. Ignace. Yeah. It, because you pronounce it, Frenchly, right? Because they say Ignis? Cairo, okay? Burbanus, St. Ignis. In what is now Michigan. At the site where earlier Jesuit Jean de Brebeuf got uh, tortured to death by the Huron back in 1649. Which again, stop and think about this. You go, Jean de Brebeuf, a beautiful looking man, by the way. Jean de Brebeuf gets tortured to death Nasty, nasty ways. Um, all the way, most of the things, well, all, two things that I'll share is uh, when the natives heard that they, that, the, that they wanted to baptize natives, um, they decided to be funny, and they, burnt, they kept pouring boiling water over the missionaries' heads. And through the whole time, Jean kept being far more concerned about the other people on his missionary team than himself. He refused to beg for mercy. The Huron just did horrible things. I mean... You want to talk about the, the Spanish Inquisition and stuff, you go, they got nothing on the Huron. The Huron are, are masters. They kept them alive for several days. But they were so impressed by, by de Brabeuf and, 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 his, and his missionaries and their, and their strength of character that they finally ripped his beating heart out and ate it in front of him because they wanted, his, they wanted that courage. They're like, you're like the toughest guy we've ever seen. What makes you people different? What makes you people different? After 9-11, we've talked about this before, after 9-11, church attendance skyrocketed in the United States for a brief period of time and then went down to lower levels than before 9-11. And several different people tried to figure out why. Barna did a, a really, really good study and they figured out when they did exit interviews and things with people, they're like, people went to church because they said, we want answers. We want something powerful. We want, we, we want to understand why it has happened. We want to understand how to live in a world of suffering. We need to understand this stuff. And they heard nothing. They saw nothing different. Time and again, people said, I went to church to see what God could infuse in my life, what difference I could see. And I saw it's no different from anything else. They just want my money. When Christianity shows something different, it changes the world. When we actually live this out in a meaningful way. The Huron were so affected by this in 1649 that at the end of their mission, Marquette actually builds a permanent settlement, a Jesuit mission, at that spot, reaching out to those people. It says something about Marquette, again, that he goes, these, these people tortured Jean to death. Those are the people we need to reach out to. And of course, the Huron torture this Jesuit to death, and a couple years later, only a couple years later, like three years later, they see another guy, another Jesuit, that says, I heard what you did. I want to reach out to you. They're like, that's the guy that we were so incredibly impressed with, 
and now another one dressed just like him comes with the exact same message. Okay, yeah, we'll listen to this guy. It's like the, it's like the Alcas all over again, over and over again. Anyway, the members of his team are the first Europeans to winter in what is now called Chicago in 1674. It's kind of cool, actually, this time in history. He died in 1675 at the age of 37 because um, he had a nasty bout of dysentery that he picked up while in Chicago. Was the just, no, but I'll give you it might have been the hot dogs. <laughs> Pizza was great. Anyway, 1675, same year that Marquette dies, uh, Spainer, Spainer uh, published a, a book called Piet uh, Desideria. Has anybody ever heard of this book or read this book? Oh, I love this book. Okay. Philip Jakob Spainer, born in Alsace, which is in that, is it France or is it Germany? Here we are, just keeps bouncing around between the two. Alsace Lorraine. Okay. Interesting place, especially in like World War I. Go study it sometime. Google it. Anyway, at this stage, it's in the Holy Roman Empire. It's not in France. And so he was born in Alsace. He's educated in Strasbourg, took a pastorate in Frankfurt. In fact, he became the chief pastor of the chief Lutheran church there in Frankfurt at the age of 31. This guy is kind of a mover and shaker guy. Because of that, he was invited by a Frankfurt publisher to write an introduction to a book called True Christianity by a guy named Johann Arndt. Arndt had been a Lutheran pastor who found himself chafing against the Calvinist prince in his area. Because remember, if the prince is Calvinist, everybody's got to be Calvinist. So this Lutheran's like, but I'm not. So he chafed against Johann Georg, but also against the Lutheran churches that were there that said, fine, 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 we'll be Calvinistic-ish, or we'll just, we'll tone down the Lutheranism, you know, whatever. Let's just go through the motions, just to get through the day. He's like, no, I don't want to be Calvinist, I don't want to pretend to be Calvinist, and I don't want to be Lutheran in name only. We, we need to take this seriously. He wrote, as every seed produces fruit of a like nature, so the Word of God must daily produce in us new spiritual fruits. If we are to become new creatures by faith, we must live in accordance with the new birth. In a word, Adam must die, Christ must live in us. It's not enough to know God's word, one must also practice it in a living, active manner. Amen. Amen, absolutely. We're going to talk, especially this first part, we're going to talk about this in the sermon today. Every single one of us, every day, has to live as if we need to be producing new spiritual fruit. It's like manna, you can't you can't eat three days ago's manna. It gets ugly, right? Every day you need to be growing. Every day you need to be striving. That's what Art wrote. So Spainer took the opportunity to make his introduction to the book a treatise on doctrinal reform. He's like, okay, this book is telling us to do this kind of stuff. I'm going to take it even farther. I, I'm, I'm going to make a whole point about why Art is so right. The introduction itself is later published as A Pious Desire. Pia Desideria. He argued it, it, it isn't our eloquence, it's not our doctrinal cleverness, it's not what ritualistic hoops we jump through, that's not what God takes into account. That's not what impresses God. He said, instead, we shall be asked how faithfully and with how childlike a heart we sought to further the kingdom of God, with how pure and godly a teaching and how worthy an example we tried to edify our heroes amid the scorn of the world. That's what God is looking for. Did you 
genuinely seek to be a member and ambassador of the kingdom of God. That's what God is looking for. His work emphasized living out the faith, really actually doing this on a daily basis in pious interactions, which is why this emphasis on piety eventually became known as pietism. Our church came out of this tradition. Spanier argued for reform within the actual church. Number one, he says we should study the Bible holistically, richly. You should, shouldn't just listen to a preacher preach on things. First off, preach the whole Bible, not just little liturgical bits here and there. This whole, you know, preaching the, the, uh, I'm blank, I'm losing, the uh, lectionary. Yeah, this whole preaching the lectionary thing, he's like, no, no, no. Take chunks, exposit these chunks. Read the Bible, not just nibble on it. Secondly, the laity should meet within churches within churches. You should be called out bits within called out bits. Small group Bible studies. You guys should interact with and delve deeply with the word. Swedish pietists call these groups covenanticals, which is why we're called the Evangelical Covenant Church. comes out of these covenanticals, these small group Bible studies. Now, I would love to sit there and say, and that is why small groups are so important to our congregation today, because of our, our pietistic roots. I'm like, um, sure, okay, yeah. But also because we realized, just like they realized, that the best way that you can help people to learn about God is to, is to teach it on a macro level, like in a sermon, to try to give you uh, chewed up, digested bits that you can hopefully understand because we put it in a framework, to, inter to, to have an interactive teaching time, maybe in a Sunday school class, but to have an interactive, we're all chewing on this, we're all digesting this together in small groups times, where we're, we're genuinely trying to exposit and exegete the Word of God together. Oh, sure. In fact, a good use of the lectionary is exactly that. The whole point of, of lectionary was originally so that everybody's on the same page every week, but, if, but the lectionary goes over the whole Bible eventually. Bad use of the lectionary, which is what he's kind of talking about, is all right. Well, we're in the we're going to take this from the Old Testament and this from the New Testament. So that's part of the lectionary reading today. We're going to link them together. Have a nice day. You know, and, and, and it's not really expositing their context. But you're right. The whole point of the lectionary is originally to give you that kind of broad strokes understanding of things. But and anything that's powerful can be used good, can be used well, and can be used badly. Any ritual, any lack of ritual, any uh, tradition, any lack of tradition, any novelty, any—all these things can be good or bad. Anyway, okay. Secondly, he's like, we need to emphasize the priesthood of everybody. Yes, there are some people who are called to be pastors. Not everybody is, but all of us are called to be priests. Every single one of us. We all have the responsibility to be living out our faith to the world, right? We don't all have to be shepherds of everybody else, but we all all need to be standing between the world and, and the Lord and drawing people to him. Number three, knowledge is great, practice is better. I want you to understand things, but you have to live it out, right? You actually have to do something with what you know. So a personal devotional life is crucially important. It's not enough just to show up on Sundays. You have to be reading the Bible. You have to be praying with the Lord on a daily basis. You need to be really connecting with him. Fourth, our focus shouldn't be on fighting one another, on loving one another. 
Remember, this is a time when everybody was defining their faith on who they hate. I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Catholic. Or I'm not a Puritan. I'm in Church of England. Well, I'm not Church of England. I'm a Quaker. Well, I'm not a Quaker. I'm a Baptist. And who do I hate today? And what are they doing wrong? That's the way most people are viewing things. He's like, you know what? Don't do that. You can disagree, but don't define yourself on that. How do you play that out today? How do you hold to what you believe, but not base yourself solely on who's wrong? Or conversely, how do we sometimes mess that up? Well, I think one of the best ways to live it out is to have everything be up for discussion. Or just discussing, not with barbs or insults, but let's talk this out. Let's see what results you have from Scripture. Put things together and have a light argument about it. Um, and then go have dinner together. You know, just meeting and speaking and sharing without the judgment along with it. And slowly, suddenly, things that the Lord will need to do. How do churches sometimes screw this up today? Still. Do we still sometimes define ourselves by what we're against? Okay, the church I grew up in, though, I think was a great teaching church. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely would define themselves by not being Calvinist. Um, instead of being open to having a dialogue where it would either affirm you or, or be open to being changed, if that's really not what Scripture says, it was so adamant on this is what it was and it, it shut down reaching out it shut down unity of the faith well and and uh, what we figured out and, and long before i got here but definitely i saw it in, in practice early on in, in our church was by having um biblically rock solid calvinists and like 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 randy uh biblically searching arminians like jim Irwin on the same leadership teams trying to interact with each other helped us to develop a better understanding of how this works. If, if, you, if you have an Armenian pulling for we have a genuine responsibility, we are in charge of our own actions, we are making our own decisions, and we are, we are culpable for, before God for our decisions that are our choice, trying to come at it from a strong Armenian standpoint, and we have a strong Calvinistic standpoint that says, you do understand we have a sovereign God who has understood all of this and set all this in motion since before the beginning of time. All of this. None of this is out of God's purview. And you set those both in the same room and say, so, let's make wise decisions. You tend to get wiser decisions. Unless they're just sitting there going, you're dumb, dumb. But Randy would sit there and say, yes, you're morally culpable before the Lord for your decisions. And Jim would say, yes, I believe that God is, is overarching all things. They'll have different perspectives on it. But it's nice to have that healthy tension that prevents one from having such a broad stroke simplistic view that you can unfortunately fall into. I, I, I find it very, very helpful, very nuancing to our decision making. Yeah, uh, but you're coming from two people, as your example, two people who are very strong. Right. And know their scriptures and all that. Yep. It's just that when, what, what I think about, though, when you say let's open up and do the discussion is the ones that are so wishy-washy. That's why I left my other church. Yep. Because we started, the preaching even started getting to where they, everything wasn't a def- definition anymore. And that's what, you, again, 
that's what you need to, to, you always need to be able to do these things within healthy brackets, within healthy boundaries. This is where you go, let's be very open-minded within a clear, strong Bible framework. Not, well, you know, I kind of, I'm just, it makes me uncomfortable to feel like, uh, lovingly, I don't care. I, I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable. That cannot be part of our decision-making process. It has to be part of how we express it with one another, of how we interact with one another, but not whether or not something is true. I don't, I don't like the idea that the sky is blue. I really like pink. Can we just make it a pink sky? And you go, I, I don't care if you really like pink. The sky is the color that it is. Now, I need to be careful how I present this to you, because I don't want to say, well, only stupid people like pink. No, 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 no. But it can't change what color we see the sky as, and we have to go back to Scripture as the, the, the absolute foundation for all this. It's interesting, Grace Church mentioned this once recently, and uh, he preached on baptism. Mm -hmm. uh, they have since added a baptistry. Mm -hmm. They say, this isn't our core belief. Some of you... Uh, one immersion. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an option now. For a church that size to make that decision. It's, yeah, that's kind of significant on, on a number of different levels. But, but it's, saying, it's saying this is important, but at the same time, um, ministering to one another needs to be important in how we go about doing it. They do, but to, to specifically make it a point of, of making a public declaration of this, yeah, it is, it's very significant. They used to people Did they? Yeah. I, I did, I've done that before. Anyway, um, we also, without getting overly political, we need to be careful if we hold strong political views that we don't define our Christianity by what we're for or against on a political level. Are you, are you pro... Immigrant rights, um, same-sex marriage, uh, pro-choice, that's what it means to be a Christian. Are you against uh, gay marriage, against uh, uh, abortion, um, what have you? That's how you define being an evangelical. You go, do you really want to define yourself by what you're against politically? Or, or can you say, can we, can we try to remind ourselves why this stuff is important because of what we do genuinely believe proactively in Scripture. That, like, in, in both those cases, both those sides of the political fence, those all, their arguments are bolstered best by saying, "Wait, can we get back to the idea that all people were are created in the image of God, and we and, and we need to see them all as brothers and sisters or potential brothers and sisters?" Oh. Number five, universities should really focus on making Christians. If you remember at this time, universities were designed for what? What are universities primarily doing at this stage in history? Yeah, these are designed to create ministers. Monks, priests, pastors, theologians. That's what universities do for the most part. But he says, you know what? Too many universities are focused on training people to be pastors or priests without even making sure that they're believers. You're training them how to do a Bible study don't even know if they have the Holy Spirit in them. You're training them how to read Greek, how to read Latin, but you haven't trained them how to listen to God. Yeah, they might be technically proficient theologians, but they're not Christians. How healthy is this? We need to say, maybe we should be building Christians. How do we apply that? How do we apply that, not just in the university, but in our church? We need to be careful that we're not just teaching people how to look like good Christians and how to quote Bible verses. 
whether they be youth or new people or covenanters who have been here for 20 years, it's like, are we just showing them how to look like good Christians and be technically proficient, or are we actually equipping them for being Christians? So he says, pastors really shouldn't focus on just trying to write beautiful sounding sermons. You need to equip the believer and nurture new life in Christ. You need to help people see that they need to be living out the gospel and be changed. And so, just like with the Anabaptists, opponents of pietism sat there and said, so you're basically just all salvation by works, right? It's all about what you do. No, 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 no. We're just saying you actually have to live this out. Do something with it. Okay, so I'm only a Christian if I'm doing stuff about it. Sort of enough for the reasons that you say. You know, it's like, no, you, you need to be, if this means something to you, you need to live it out. But it's not like you are a Christian because you live it out. It's not salvation by works, it's you've been saved, so do some works. Read Ephesians. It's all about that, right? I can't remember what time period it was, but they were being arrested or killed because they were praying mm -hmm. in families and on their own. And if somebody got cured, that meant they were praying and all that. So... Is this like going against that law, or was that kind that, of already that, out? That, that law is no longer in, in practice, because that was under someone stronger. But but there is still this, this sense of, you still can be, if I remember correctly, gosh, I think you can still be fined for um, for the heresy of promoting a works-oriented salvation by doing anything that a priest or bishop might think is works-oriented. So, I mean, even if you're a plowman and, and you're saying, you know what, I need to apologize. I barked at you like I shouldn't have barked. If I'm really going to live out my Christianity, I, I shouldn't have yelled like that. Somebody can go, oh, so you're only a Christian if you don't yell. No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you've, you've gone down the road of murder, and I, I called you a fool, and I, I, I shouldn't have done that. If somebody sits there and goes, oh, that's work story, yeah, you can get in trouble. So I actually have a great deal of respect for the pietists for sitting there going, you know, do something with this. They're coming at this from a completely different theological tradition than the Anabaptists. But you, you keep running into these people that are going, hey, you know what, maybe we ought to live this out. Puritans, yet again, a completely different theological tradition, and they do it in a very different way, but it's still also this, hey, you know, maybe we ought to live this thing out. Over and over you get people going, have you read this? Are we, are we doing this? And everybody else looks at them and goes, ah, works are we in the salvation. So, 1677, William Penn purchases West Jersey. Don't make a face. He purchases West Jersey. It's getting really nasty for Quakers, right? Nobody likes the Quakers. The, the Church of England doesn't want the Quakers around. The Quakers don't want the Quakers in England. Nobody wants the Quakers in England. So Penn says, I'm going to petition the king. Quakers are wanting to go to the colonies. Six years ago, we already sent some missionaries over to the colonies, and, and, and some of those missions are growing. That's good. Since none of the colonies like Quakers, even the colony based on, let's let everybody believe what they want to believe, they don't even like us. Tell you what, Charles II, you remember Charles II, Charles II, could you sell us our own colony? You just stole New Amsterdam from the Dutch. I know you've got the land. Can I buy it from you? 
Charles says, well, I'm strapped for cash, so yes, you can have West Jersey. I, I really need money, because um, I'm putting all that gold and brass back in all the churches and things now, right? And I'm, and I'm levying a lot of taxes to support the, the, the new restored monarchy. So yeah, I have no money. Yeah, that sounds great. You can have West Jersey, that section of New Amsterdam. Five years later, Penn's like, um, can we have East Jersey? Because we're growing, and I would really like East Jersey. And Charles is about to default on a loan from William Penn Sr. It's like, I don't have money, and my loan is due. So tell you what, how about, how about, how about I give you the land, and we call it, we call it even, right? We're cool. I don't owe anybody anything then, and you can have the land. Life is good. So Jersey, named after William Penn, right? Charles throws in 45,000 square miles of extra stuff. If you notice, it extends past the red here. Some of his land he didn't necessarily own. He's like, yeah, all that's yours. Knock yourself out. Either because I respect William Penn Sr. or to sweeten the fact that I'm giving Jersey back to my brother, the Duke of York. Remember the Duke of York? For whom New York is named? Yeah. It's like, um, the Duke of York said, dude, I'm the one that took New Amsterdam. And you're selling it off to some other guy because you're strapped for cash? That's mine. I'm telling mom, you can't do this. So he's like, all right, all right, all right. I'm giving York, I'm giving, I'm giving New York and New Jersey back to the Duke of York, to James. But you get all that. You get all that land that we don't technically own. That's yours. I love Charles. I just love Charles. Charles is great. Anyway, but Charles, well, Penn calls this Sylvania, meaning, well, not yet. Sylvania, what does Sylvania mean? Anybody know? Light bulb. Light bulb, that's right. What? <laughs> woods, yeah. So Transylvania is the land beyond the woods. It's on the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the deep, dark forest is Transylvania. Penn calls this Sylvania. Charles calls it Pennsylvania because it's Penn's forest. So anyway, all this made William Penn the owner of the world's largest privately held parcel of land. That's kind of huge. But think about that. It's like, everybody other than kings, Penn has the largest chunk of land, which is kind of huge. So, he's like, all right, um, we need some rules here. I've got my own colonial charter. I can do anything I want with it. I'm not just a colony. This is my, this is my house. This is my backyard. This is my plantation. All of Pennsylvania is my plantation. I can pretty much do this how I want. But he's like, all right, I want, I'm a Quaker, and so... In our meetings, everybody has equal voice. We don't do clergy. We don't have hierarchies. So we sort of have this in some of the other colonies. But here in Pennsylvania, I want to make sure everybody has equal voice. Everybody has equal voice. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're coming from. Just like we do amongst the Quakers, complete democracy. And when it comes down to laws like punishing criminals, you know what? Let's rehabilitate them. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, in Pennsylvania, they, they, there were something, there were several hundred laws that you could be killed for under British law um, for breaking. And in Pennsylvania, there were two. Like murder and treason were the only things that you could actually get the death penalty for. 
Everything else is a matter of rehabilitating. That's the mentality of, of Pennsylvania at the time. So again, sets the stage for modern understanding of law in the United States. That this is for everybody. That we're not just trying to ascertain guilt and how to get rid of them. We're trying to ascertain who broke the law and how do we get them back into society. Fundamentally different view of the penal system than what English law had, even though it still followed a lot of the English law. So again, everybody thank William Penn and the Quakers for changing how we do law today. We don't think about it usually like that, but they were incredibly instrumental in changing all this stuff. Now, I should say this. Is he, does he look familiar to you, this picture? Yeah. Well, that's right, man. <laughs> William Penn, his likeness was used as the very first registered trademark for breakfast cereal on September 4th, 1877. Quaker Oats. Quaker Oats. <laughs> okay, here's a question. Why? Why, why, use, why use William Penn's likeness for a, a breakfast cereal called Quaker Oats? Because they... Because he's a Quaker. Okay. And they grew oats. That okay. Like they're big. Money maker thing in their country. Okay. In their area. Okay. Anybody else want to talk? Chime in. Both those are true. Oh yeah. Strangely enough. Yeah. Okay. Nobody involved in the company had anything to do with Quakers. That has nothing to do with it whatsoever with William Penn or the Quakers. The founder, Henry Seymour, wanted to use a name that evoked trustworthiness and old-fashioned values. Okay. He read an encyclopedia article on the Quakers and how they were industrious and how they, they, they really took seriously what they're doing. So he's like, that's it. I'm renaming the company Quaker Mills. Call it Quaker Oats. I'm going to find the most old-fashioned symbol I can picture that people sit there and go, there, that's old-fashioned quality is what that is. That's like my grandmother used to make. That's, that's oatmeal like my grandmother used to make. You go, right, generations of people have eaten this, <laughs> trusting in it because it was old-fashioned. By 1877 standards. In 1877, they went, okay, totally out of date. And we're like, yeah. Tell me, you don't look at that image and have an immediate emotional reaction of old fashioned. Talk about marketing, even at that even. Oh, brilliant sticking marketing, which I find fascinating is that they keep trying to update the logo. The irony of that A, I hate this logo, but B, to be that they go, well, we want our old fashioned logo, but we want it to look newfangled. <laughs> Henry Seymour is just rolling in his grave going, I came up with like the greatest marketing gimmick ever, and you screwed it up. Pardon me? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Quaker Oaks, maybe do a throwback. If, if we find out that that's what they're doing, for the last 10 years they've been using this thing simply so that they can. Go back to an old-fashioned logo. <laughs> then I'm going to go, my hat's off to you, my Quaker hat. My Quaker hat is off to you, my friends. But until then, I'm going to be a little frustrated. So when they first started, though, that the first picture you had up there, that's what they used yep. back then? Yep. What was in his hand? Looks like a hockey oh. guy. <laughs> uh, Quaker Oats is in one hand, and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a label that says, pure. <laughs> I guarantee this is pure. Oh, that was back in 1877. Back in 1877, the very first registered trademark for a breakfast cereal. <laughs> love it. Love it. I love it. 1678, 
and we'll, and we'll pick up on this maybe next time. Olapin and Cavalier, Cavalier, again, not good at French. Discover Niagara Falls. No, 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 no. okay. I'll do, yeah, okay, two minutes, two minutes. He's a Franciscan and a former Jesuit, a uh, guy named uh, uh, René Robert Cavalier, uh, the, the, the Knight of La Salle. Thus they refer to him as La Salle, like La Salle, Peru La Salle. Anyway, so these two guys are traveling and they discover Niagara Falls while exploring the Great Lakes in 1678. Or, it might have actually been discovered 30 years earlier, in 1638, by a guy named Paul Ragignon, a, a Jesuit who described a great water cataract in the area. Or, it may have been discovered 30 years, 34 years before that by Samuel de Champlain. Remember when we talked about Champlain and finding the lake and everything? Who said his men had found a huge waterfall in the area back in 1604. Or, if you really want to get picky, the first first-hand account is by Jean de Brabeuf, who actually wrote about finding uh, a waterfall there when he was hanging out with the Iroquois at that time. I don't know. Everybody goes, our guy, our guy, well, our guy, no, our guy, our guy. All these different traditions, it's fun. Whoever found the falls first, we do know that Alpin and La Salle found uh, a fort and founded, not discovered, but founded a fort in central Illinois in 1680. They'd had so many problems. It had been such a difficult journey that they called it Fort Brokenheart. Anybody know how you say Fort Brokenheart in French? Crèvecoeur. So Crèvecoeur, founded in 1680 by these two guys. And that's that's when we start coming into things. Crèvecoeur here? Seriously? Mm -hmm. See, this is where it starts getting fun, because all of a sudden you start going, oh, that's us. So... <laughs> Okay, let's start with this next time. 1678, John Bunyan writes Pilgrim's Progress. Same year that these guys discovered the Niagara Falls uh, for the fourth time. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for our history and everything that's come before us. And I pray, Lord, that you, you help us to appreciate everyone that's gone before, but that you also help us to learn that that we want to know what we believe and why we believe. We want to live it out and live out a commitment to Scripture. That we want to, to love one another well even when we disagree with one another. That we want to, to be people who live every day as if today matters in our growth in you. Help us, Lord, to be pietistic even if we're not pietists. To, to love you well to want to devour your word and be filled with your Holy Spirit. Be glorified, Lord, and help our lives, because we're ambassadors, change the lives of those around us, because what we bring to the table is something so fundamentally, profoundly different. In Jesus' name, amen.